Y'all, we've got Kobe Martin with us. Would y'all make him welcome, author, friend of Grace Point. Thanks for being here, Kobe. Thank you, Ricky. I was like, oh, a real treat? What's the treat? Oh, 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 it's just, it's just me. I was like, is there brownies that nobody told me about? Hey. The hourglass, the bar, and the seed. But first, I want to ask you a few questions. Uh, let's do this. By a show of hands, what, uh, no, let's do something a little more interactive. Let's, let's pretend we're at like a beat poet thing. So by a show of snaps, okay? Snap for me if in the last, let's say, week, you have experienced being annoyed. Okay, all right. <laughs> all the parents are like... <laughs> How about um, in the last week or so, snap for me if you have experienced a kind of disappointment. Disappointment, yeah, you're out there. Okay, I'll give, you, I'll give you a month for this one. How about in the last month? Snap for me if you have experienced, <laughs> he's like, I'm already ready for it. Frustration, frustration, okay. How about in the last month, have you experienced, snap for me, if you've experienced any stress? <laughs> All right, I'll give you six months for this. In the last six months, have you experienced sadness? Let's go a year. In the last year, by way of snaps, let me know if you've experienced any sorrow in your life. Yeah. And then finally, I'll give you three years for this one. Just by a show of snaps, let me know if in the past three years you've experienced what you might call deep anguish or misery. Okay, one, one final question. Snap for me if you did not snap for any of those prompts. Yeah. Yeah. The hourglass, the bar, and the seed. What I just described for you is what you might call the spectrum of what the Buddha calls the first noble truth, which is the word dukkha. And dukkha is often translated in our language as suffering. But I don't know that suffering fully captures this concept because oftentimes when we think suffering, we think just the things on this far end of the scale. But dukkha is really a way to name the full spectrum of annoyance, frustration, disappointment, anxiety, stress, sadness, sorrow, misery, anguish. It's this, all of this is a kind of suffering. This is dukkha. And why does this happen? Well, the Buddha goes on to teach because he says one of the fundamental truths about reality is that nothing lasts. Impermanence is the word that's often used here. Nothing can be relied upon to last. Everything is changing, fading, dying. Nothing 
lasts. People come and go. Things deteriorate. Nothing lasts. And yet, we live as though that's not true. We live as though we can hold on to things and it will last forever. Or we live as though we're in denial of that. And it's this gap between what is real and true, everything fades away, and how we live. This gap here is the experience of suffering. We experience these things because there's a gap between how we live our lives and what is fundamentally true about reality, that nothing lasts. This gap is the suffering And here's the thing about Dukkha. It is, like Thanos, inevitable. (laughs) Speaking of snaps. (laughs) It is inevitable. You can't not suffer. You can live a perfect life. You can do everything right. and, And suffering will still find you. I mean, is this not one of the kind of takeaways from the life of Jesus? You do everything right and you still suffer. It's inevitable. Dukkha is inevitable. And yet other than the masochists among us, I don't know why I landed on you, I'm sure you're normal, but other than <laughs> other than the few masochists among us, we, we don't like, we don't want to suffer. Nobody really wants to suffer. We don't really like suffering. We don't enjoy it. If given the choice right now between being stressed about something or relieved of it, if given the choice right now of being riddled with anxiety or having it lifted, if, if this afternoon I said you could sit in hours of sadness or go to a pizza party and celebrate an anniversary, right? We're all going to choose the latter. We don't, want, we don't want the suffering. We don't want the dukkha. Nobody wants this. And yet it's inevitable. To me, this is like the fundamental human predicament is that life is really freaking hard. It's really hard. The hourglass, the bar, and the seed. By my estimation, humans have attempted two ways to manage and handle the fact that we have this range of suffering that we experience that we cannot not experience. Attempt number one looks like this. We try and arrange the external world to perfectly suit our internal needs and desires. And so we buy and we use and we manipulate and we control and we erect barriers and we protect and we abuse all in an effort to try and manage and make the external world perfectly aligned with all of what we need in here so that we never feel sadness or sorrow or stress or anxiety. That's attempt number one. Attempt number two is kind of the uh, polar opposite of that where we think if I can just be Zen all the time and have no attachment, no desires to nothing, then I will never experience frustration, sadness, joy, or sorrow because uh, what, what do I care? And we try and just Zen out and ignore the fact. I think both of these attempts ultimately are failures. <laughs> Attempt number one, it doesn't work. I don't know if you know this. You can't control the world. You can't control your environment. You can't control what happens to you. You cannot make a perfect condition of the external world to perfectly suit your, because the minute you do that for you, you're going to bum out the person next to you, which is going to bum you out because you bummed them out. So if you control the whole world for all of us, we're just not going to like you. And that'll make you sad. So now you've just lost your mission. You can't, you can't do attempt number one. And attempt number two, 
it's just not, it's not a real fun way to live. <laughs> like when you just have no attachments or desires or nothing, this is not a life that I think is worth living either because then we numb out to the best parts of life as well. So these two don't work. These attempts to try and handle the fact that suffering is inevitable, it happens to all of us, life is really hard, these attempts do not work. So then what do we do? If we can't avoid suffering, but we also don't really like it, <laughs> we don't want to suffer, what do we do? Now I'll pause there because I do want to put a little bit of nuance on this idea of we don't want to suffer. Because I'm not... I'm not sure that's totally accurate. I say that for two reasons. The first is this. Do you remember that story in the Gospels where it's towards the end of Jesus' ministry and he tells his best friends, he's like, I just want to give you a heads up. I'm about to be turned over to the state and I'm going to endure some suffering. And do you remember what Peter did? He's like, never, Lord. We'll never let that happen to you. And then do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Satan. Snap your fingers if you've called your best friend Satan in the last week. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Get behind me, Satan. That's, that's harsh. Satan is like a way to talk about deception, deceiver. It's, it's as though Jesus was saying, Peter, you think, you think I can walk the path of love and avoid suffering? doesn't work that way. That's an illusion. That's the illusion of this gap between what is real, what is fundamental, what is true, and you're trying to live as though you can walk the path of love and not suffer. They're the same path, bro. The bro's not in the Greek. I put that in for your, your benefit. So I don't know that we want to avoid suffering altogether because Otherwise, we're avoiding the path of love. And then the other reason why I'm not entirely convinced we want to avoid suffering and is because, and I think we know this, I think we know this, we can't really grow without suffering. Uh, we can't really grow without suffering. I'm learning this in all new ways, like in the world of strength training and weightlifting, because what they say is, look, if you only ever lift what you can already lift, you're not going to grow. You and they say it like this, listen to the sentence, you have to put the body in a state of stress to give it a reason to adapt. How much do you hate slash love that sentence? <laughs> we need to be stressed in order to adapt. So I'm not entirely sure it's accurate to say we don't want to experience suffering. So here's what I think, and here's what I want to share with you. Here's why I'm here this morning. If A, suffering is inevitable, and B, suffering also kind of sucks, we don't really like it, then I submit to you that maybe, maybe our best move here is to try and reduce our experience of suffering. Maybe that's the move. The late um, Tibetan monk Thich Nhat Hanh teaches this. When we learn to suffer better, we suffer less. When we learn to suffer, when we get better at suffering, 
which I'll explain here in a minute, we suffer less. The experience is reduced. Which finally brings us to, obviously, because you've been waiting for it, the hourglass, the bar, and the seed. The hourglass, the bar, and the seed. This is, these are three practices that I have over the last year of my life utilized as a way to survive. I'll say more about that later. As a way to reduce my experience of suffering. And I give them to you today because, guess what? You're alive, which means, guess what? Everybody snapped because we all experience, have experienced, and will experience dukkha. So maybe these will be practices helpful for you now, or maybe just stick them in your tool belt, and you'll, you'll need them in a couple weeks. Okay, so the hourglass. Sometimes the way we reduce suffering in our life is through the practice of the hourglass. And this is a reminder that nothing lasts. Now, Colby, didn't you just say that the fact that nothing lasts is what causes the suffering? Yes, but also in a fun, paradoxical twist of beautiful fate. Also, the good news about nothing lasts is that also your suffering doesn't last. The experience of sorrow, anguish, sadness, stress, frustration, annoyance, these cannot relax. Because here's the thing, there is a you that is you, deep in here, there's a you that is you, that is unfazed by, untouched by, cannot be impacted by any of this suffering. Not really. Because these, these experiences of suffering, these are things that are happening around you, ideally through you, but they're not happening to you. Not the part that is you, not the you that is you. This part is untouched. When we experience dukkha, these are quite literally nothing more and nothing less. These are, these are experiences of energy that are coming into our reality that cannot be relied upon to last because here's what happens. The minute we are aware of the current moment, what does it become? The past. Then you're aware of the next moment. What does it become? The past. The thing about moments is none of them can be relied upon to last because they don't, they can't, they won't. Even the emotional experiences of suffering cannot, will not last. So the hourglass is this reminder that nothing lasts, including your dukkha. There's a legend of a sultan from the east who traveled a great distance to beseech the wisdom of Solomon. You remember that Old Testament character who had this divine wisdom? And he came to Solomon and he said, Solomon, give me something that is always true. Something that I can inscribe on the signet of my ring that no matter whether I'm experiencing great success or great sorrow, something that I can always rely upon to be true in every situation. And Solomon thought about it for a bit. And he said, how about this? This too shall pass. This too shall pass. The hourglass is the practice of, as you know, as you imagine, the grains of sand falling through that nothing lasts. Everything will change, including my experience and state of suffering. The hourglass. And then sometimes the way that we can reduce our suffering is through the bar. And no, I don't mean like old fashions and mimosas, although clearly you got very excited about that. Not that kind of bar. <laughs> no, when I talk about the bar, I mean that we establish a new threshold for what we think we need 
in order to find relief from the dis-ease of dukkha. It is lowering the bar of what we think we need. Now, I know a minute ago I said that this path of asceticism or the path of of denying that we have any desires or needs and trying to be Zen all the time uh, is not really an ideal way to live. But I do think, that being said, I do think there's wisdom in practicing lowering the bar for how much of the world's external stimulus we think we need in order to be happy. I think there's great wisdom in this move. Most of us are driven by, by the following idea. And again, this is another thing that we all, we all know, I think we know this, but we're driven, whether consciously or unconsciously, intentional or not, we are driven by the ideas that we will be happier with a better car, happier with a bigger home, happier with more income, happier with a new, different, more sexy relationship. We think we, think we, can, we can solve this illusion of the gap between the things that are always changing and how we love our life. We think we can solve that by just adding to our lives and getting more and new and bigger. But really we just widen this gap between these two things. But what if we can lower the bar for what we think we need to make us happy? Then we will actually begin to suffer better. And in turn, we suffer less. Now, let me give you an example. I try to practice this with desserts. What do I mean by that? Here's my theory on desserts. I don't think desserts get any better after bite number three. I think three is the peak climax experience of your dessert eating. Bites four through 15, they don't really do you any favors. They don't taste all that much better. In fact, by the time you get to bite 15, you're like, I don't know that I feel, I don't know that I feel great. You'll feel great after bite three, just stop. (laughs) You don't believe me, try it next time. (laughs) Lowering the bar, I don't actually need all of this. I'm I'm okay, I'm, I'm thrilled, I'm happy. With just this, I'm lowering the bar of what I think I need for the world's external stimulus in order to bring about a state of happiness. If you want to dig deeper into this particular practice or this topic, I recommend the book to you. It's called Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence uh, by psychiatrist Anna Limke. And Anna Limke talks about how we live in a society where our access to pleasure is unbelievably endless. And you and I did not evolve to handle this much pleasure this often. When we get hit with all of the, all of the pleasure, our, our, our dopamine just begins to, it just begins to uh, 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 fill up way more than we can handle. What Anna Limke says is that our, our brain cannot exist in an imbalanced state with so much dopamine. So imagine a teeter-totter and we put all these hits of pleasure and our brain fills up on dopamine. Oh, it's great, it's great, it's great, it's great. That imbalance, what we do is we invite the gremlins of suffering to jump on the other side of the teeter-totter because our body has to find homeostasis. We are inundated with hits of dopamine. We seek, we seek, we have access to pleasure and we just use it all the time. And this is why we always have to come down from it because our bodies have to level out. It has no choice. How much suffering can be reduced if we just are aware we don't need constant pleasure hits. It's too much. Can we lower the bar for what we think we need of the world's external stimulus to find a kind of happiness? And in so doing, 
We invite less gremlins of suffering. That's called Dopamine Nation. Check it out. <sighs> and use promo code. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so the practice of the bar is this. Learn to be delighted in the fact. Learn to be delighted in the fact that you can experience at all. Oh, man. Rather than seeking to be delighted by the experience. Learn to be delighted by the fact that you can experience it all. Whew rather than try to be delighted by the experience. For me, this looks like just learning to say over and over again, good gravy, I'm alive. This is amazing. You don't have to say good gravy, that's just mine. I don't know why. I don't know why I say that. I'm from the West Coast. Where does, it, where does that come from? But it's just, I'm, a, I'm alive. I get another day? This is amazing. When you do that, you lower the bar. And you learn to suffer better and in turn suffer less. The hourglass, the bar. And then finally, some way, sometimes the best way to suffer better is by the seed. So every once in a while, I don't know if you have this experience, uh, I was born and raised in the church and I, I did my, my, my 10 years of being a pastor in conservative evangelicalism and then I had my significant theological shifts and kind of left evangelicalism behind and have shifted towards a more progressive expression of Christianity. And, that takes us on a predictable sometimes path of, as it relates to the Bible. And every once in a while, I will come back to these passages that I haven't really thought about or read in a long time, and I'll find this newness to it. I'm like, whoa, has this been here the whole time? Yeah, it has, but I've changed, and now I come back to it, and it hits me in a different way. And so I want to share with you a brief path, passage from Romans chapter 5. And I want to I see if you, if you see what I see here. So Romans 5, starting in verse 2, Paul writes this, We boast in the hope of God's glory. But not only that, we even take pride. And the word here for pride is like we get stoked on. <laughs> we, get, we get thrilled by, we boast in our problems. And the word here, problems, is to like to be pressed upon, to experience distress. We get stoked when we experience problems and distress. Why? Well, because we know that this trouble, these problems, produces, which is another way of saying creates, it generates, it produces endurance. And I think a great word for endurance is grit. <clears throat> we are stoked when we experience problems, when we experience being pressed upon, because we know that that experience there produces grit endurance, a kind of patience, a kind of able to withhold. And grit produces character. Now, the Greek word here for character is dokime. And dokime comes from this idea that in the ancient world, when they would use uh, coins for, for their currency, it would, be, it would actually be like precious metals. And there was the practice of whittling the, the, the fine edge of the coin. You would just kind of shave off the outside of the coin, still keep enough of a coin to where you could pass it as currency, but then you also kind of keep some of the metals for yourself. You do this enough and you can then kind of melt it down and you get free money. But there were some individuals who refused to do that and they would put full coins into circulation and they were called dokime. They were called people of great character. Character is when you've been tried and you've been found to be good. And that kind of character, once you're rolling in those waters, that produces hope. Now hope, I submit to you, might be the antithesis to suffering. 
Because suffering has a way of convincing us, not only is life hard, life will always be hard. Just buckle up. It'll, it'll just only ever get worse from here. Hope has a way of saying, or maybe not. Maybe things might get better. Maybe life has beauty too. This is hope. Now, if Paul's right in this calculus, and I, and I think he might be, then here's the situation. The situation is this. You can't access hope without character. You don't get to that level of things might actually get better without having the character. But you can't develop this character without having the complications, the problems, the pressure, the, 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 the stress. And you can't overcome the complications without having a kind of grit and endurance. But you don't get to have the grit without the suffering. What does that say that if hope is the antidote to suffering, what does it say that these are somehow linked? You don't get to one without the other. There's something that I think uh, most people are really good at. And I've learned this in my 20 years as a pastor, as I've walked with so many people through different seasons of life and just met people as I've been traveling. I think most people are really good at the following. Most people are really good at looking back in our lives. And oftentimes this is like the farther back we look, the, the, the better we are at this particular thing. Most of us are really good at looking back into our lives and saying, yeah, there was this time where I experienced some of the, the, the hardest sorrow, the deepest suffering. That was the hardest season of life. I was miserable. I was depressed. I was afraid. It was really hard. I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. And most of us are really good at saying, but now when I look back on that, I can see how that led to this, which led to that, which brought about this. And now I'm here and I kind of like where I am here. And in a, in a fun twist, that even M. Night Shyamalan couldn't anticipate, we find ourselves almost grateful for that event, for that experience, which we never, never would have thought to say when it was happening. Of course not. I think most of us are really good at this. We look back on the times that were the hardest and we're like, okay, but I also see now the series of events kind of actually now glad. Am I, am I glad that I went through that? So I think about that, and I wonder, here's what I've been thinking about. And this might be where some of the secret sauce of the spiritual life is. When Thich Nhat Hanh teaches, if we learn to suffer better, then we suffer less. What if the goal is to reduce this time between when we experience a kind of suffering and we find a gratitude for it? What if we can reduce this time, which is a way of getting better at suffering, and suddenly we're suffering less? I 
Which brings us, of course, to the seed. Jesus is quoted in the Gospel of John as saying the following, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. Unless it dies, it cannot bear fruit. We like fruit. Fruit's good. Fruit's great. We want fruit. And yet we don't get it without a, a, a death. Is this what the spiritual life is? Learning what deaths we need to suffer so that we might experience the fruit of life? Maybe put it as simple as possible in the words of Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, die and become. Die and become. I believe that the more that we see this, name this, practice this, the more that we die and become, the more that we reduce the time between when we experience dukkha and when we can find gratitude for it, in it, as a result, the more that we, we do this, I believe, the more we reduce our suffering. And do you know why this works? There's like a reason why this works. And the reason is because the only thing more painful than the experience of suffering itself is when we don't have a sense of meaning or purpose for why the suffering is happening. That's a kind of added psychological pain that's unfathomable. When we experience the suffering and we don't feel there's any meaning or purpose for it. What happens with gratitude, it's got this magical, mysterious, alchemy about it. The gratitude has a way of, after a, an event, generating a kind of meaning for the suffering. And this reduces and alleviates some of the suffering. This is like, this is like how it works at a, at, a, at, a, at a brain body level. So you could put it simply like this as we head into the week of Thanksgiving. Gratitude is a path toward healing. Gratitude is a path toward healing. If we want to suffer less, and I think we all do, <laughs> then we must learn to suffer better. And one of the best ways I know how to suffer better is to practice gratitude as close as I can. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I'm not great at this. It's not like I experienced something really tragic and then 30 seconds later I'm like, man, that was awesome. <laughs> no, no. But I can look back. I can look back on moments in my life that were the hardest. And I can imagine if I could have moved into a state of finding gratitude for it as best as I could sooner, I would have reduced that experience of suffering. But it's a practice, y'all. It's a practice. And practice is just that. Practice. We're talking about practice, y'all. I'm so glad some of you got that. <laughs> oh, I love it. The rest of you are like, what? Don't worry about it. <laughs> it was just for six of us. <laughs> okay, so where, 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 where does that leave us? I, um, 
I mentioned up near the top, I said that these are three practices that I have been utilizing in my life over the past year or so to quite literally like survive. Uh, some of the context for that is that um, just over a year ago, uh, my marriage of 19 years ended within the same manner of days, if not weeks, as when my vocation as a, 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 a pastor that had been 20 years long also ended. So in the span of just a matter of weeks, uh, I stopped being a husband and a pastor. <laughs> and anyway, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying this to elicit empathy. I'm not saying this to, to bring the room down. What I'm saying is these are legit when I talk about the hourglass, the bar, and the sea, these are things that have been keeping me going the last year. Um, and so I feel like in some ways, I'm just one beggar who found a little bit of bread just like offering it to you. When I think about the hourglass, this too shall pass. I think about the, the individuals in my life over this last year, especially in those first few months, who, and this is especially true of people who've walked the same path of suffering, you know how like sometimes their words land a little bit different. They would text me, they would call me and, and they would remind me. They would say, I, I know this, this hurts so bad. I know it does, but it won't feel like this forever. I promise. And I wanted to say, no, you don't understand. I'm exceptional. My, my pain is exceptional. It will last forever. <laughs> One of the guys who did that, I don't know if you guys know him. Do you guys know Stan Mitchell? I'm teasing. <laughs> of course you do. Um, Stan was one of those for me. And you can probably understand why he was uniquely situated to speak into my life in this way. He's like, I know this is so hard. I know it. But it won't. It won't. This too shall pass. It won't feel this way forever. That's the hourglass. In the bar, there was a moment. This was shortly after I, I moved out and I... I there was a friend, one of several friends during that time whose couch and guest room I crashed on. I remember the first friend's house that I, 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 I walked into their, their guest room with my stupid suitcase full of clothes and my backpack. And I remember opening the door, uh, staring at this tiny room and just being weeping. <laughs> uh, and I called, I called my friend, uh, Jen. I said, Jen, how did my life get to that? What, how is this, what's happening? And she said, Colby, here's what I need you to do. I need you to hang up the phone. I need you to go on a walk. <laughs> I'm like, what is a walk gonna do? She's like, just trust me. You need to get back into your body. I need you to go on a walk. And I need you to just find something beautiful on your walk. That's it, just do that. Call me back in 20 minutes. So I hung up the phone. You know what I couldn't do? I couldn't fix my life. I couldn't do that. Way outside my capacity control. You know what I could do? She lowered the bar for me. I could go on a walk. And you know what I found? I found this, this flower. Now listen to me, I get it. That's not the most beautiful flower you've ever seen. For me in that moment, it was. And I stared at this thing for like 
it felt like five hours. It was probably only five minutes, but I just stared at it. This is the most beautiful flower I've ever seen in my entire life. Eventually, I returned back into my body. This is the bar. This is lowering. You can't do all these things. You can't, you can't, you can't. What can you do? I'm going to walk. I can look for something beautiful. And then, as it relates to the seed, this is always a risk because generally when people are in grief or in their state of deep sorrow, sadness, anguish, they don't want advice. This is not what people are looking for. They want witnesses to their suffering. They just want people to say, I see that you're going through this and it must be really hard and I'm sorry. But every once in a while, I think there are people who might have the capacity in our life to invite us to consider asking the right kind of questions that we get there ourselves where maybe we could start to possibly, potentially envision a way in which what we're going through right now might have one day the capacity to look back and have some gratitude in it. And I had a friend, his name was Jason, who very beautifully would find these moments to just invite me. He didn't say it, but he would invite me to think for myself, is there anything in this moment, is there anything that maybe one day you might be thankful for? And if anybody in this room has gone through a divorce, when you're in it, like especially if it wasn't, you know, you're choosing, when you're in it, it's the worst thing in the world. And yet, I think for many people, what I'm discovering is, regardless of what caused the, the initial fracture, like a lot of times you can look back. Well, this is true with any suffering. You can look back and like, oh, actually, there's a lot. I'm really grateful for all sorts of things in this. And so this is the practice of, is there any way to reduce this time between the experience of suffering and when we can find gratitude for it? The hourglass, the bar, and the seed. When we learn to suffer better, we will suffer less. I'm going to close like this. Um, and I'm not sure this is the best way to say it. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where everyone in this room is at right now. Uh, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know. Some of you, when I said in the last three years, snap, have you experienced deep anguish or misery? And you're like, you mean Tuesday? <laughs> Some of you are in it like right now. And I think what I want to say in closing is I want to say this. You're okay. You're okay. You're okay because of course you're okay. Of course you are. The, the part, the you that is you that's in here, you're okay. Because of course you are. Because you've always been okay. You've always been okay. The you that is you, sometimes the Christian term for this is the imago Dei, the image of God. But even that I don't totally love because that puts a little bit of distance, like you're the image of this thing. No, the, the you that's you that's in here, a piece of you that is the divine, that's, that's always been okay. Always. It doesn't have any other way to be. You're, you're okay. Because of course you are. Because you've always been okay. You've always been okay. You're okay.
you're okay. And, and it's really lovely to have someone, someone else say that to you, right? To look you in the eyes and say, you're, you're okay. Because of course you're okay. You've always been okay. That's really great. But you know what's even better than that? Is when you can say it to yourself. So I'm going to invite you, if you want, to just place your hand right over your heart, right over your life force, right over your, the you that is you that is in here. And I invite you to say to yourself, you don't have to say this out loud, you can just say it in your own, in your own mind. I invite you to say, I'm okay. Of course I'm okay. I'm okay. Of course I'm okay. Because I've always been okay. <laughs>